Welcome to Essential Ethics, brought to you by the Children's Bioethics Centre at the Royal Children's Hospital. I'm your host, Professor John Massey, Medical Director of the Children's Bioethics Service. In this podcast, we present the opening plenary session of our 2019 National Children's Bioethics Conference, given by Professor Avraham Steinberg from the Shah Zedek Medical Centre in Jerusalem. Professor Steinberg is the co-chairman of the Israeli National Council on Bioethics. He's a leading authority on Jewish medical ethics. In this session, Professor Steinberg discusses the influence of the multicultural and religious population on some distinctive ethical issues, genetics, end of life, and determining the moment of death. It's a fascinating discussion, which opens our eyes to a broader worldview of medical ethics. It gives me really a tremendous pleasure to be here with you So what I'll try to do in uh, the hour that I have is to talk a little bit about the cultural and religious differences uh, in my place in Jerusalem, but I think it reflects uh, many places all over the world. As you can see, there are very different people around the world, but in our global world, most of them are sometimes within the same location. So there may be patients that are from all kinds of cultural and religious uh, backgrounds, and they have their special needs. As we all know, medicine is very unique in the sense that it has to combine both science and art. So it's not enough to be a great scientist, a great specialist in the left ear or in the right fingernail, but it is also important to understand the patient, to flow with him, because medicine is about giving the best care, and the best care is taking into account the well-being of the patient, which is not only the physical aspect, but also the spiritual, the emotional, and the cultural background. So that's why I think it's important to realize that there are different perspectives on issues. Some of the things I'll tell you might be surprising to the ears of Western-trained physicians and nurses in current medical ethics, but I think it is important to realize that there are different viewpoints. So I come from a hospital in Jerusalem called Sharet Tzedek, which is a Hebrew term to the gates of justice. It was so named, it's an unusual name for a hospital, but it tried to reflect that we try to make justice to everyone, no matter of color, of race, and as you know, we are in the Middle East in a a war situation with certain uh, Arab politicians and uh, extremists But nevertheless, we respect all cultures. We have on our staff Arabic nurses and physicians. We have a lot of patients who are Palestinians, even from the Gaza Strip and from other areas, and we really don't discriminate patients no matter where they come from. So Sharet Sedek is a 
certainly in Israeli terms, a very large hospital. There are over 1,000 hospital beds. It offers almost all uh, advanced tertiary treatments. It was established in 902, and it was established, for those of you who, knows, who know Jerusalem, Jerusalem was only the old city where uh, people lived. Outside of the walls of the old city, there was almost a desert. There was almost nothing. And Sharet Tzedek was built outside of the walls in 1902, already in those years, where uh, very few lived there, and yet patients who needed the hospital had to travel to this hospital. And it was only a 20-bed hospital at the time, and today, as I mentioned, it has over 1,000 hospital beds. It is also unique in a sense that by the bylaws of the hospital, it has to operate by Jewish Orthodox criteria, which is not easy to follow even in a small community hospital, certainly not in a tertiary hospital, and I'll give you a few examples what it means in practice. But again, it doesn't mean that someone who is not an Orthodox Jew, who is Jewish but secular, or who is non-Jewish, wouldn't get the same treatment no matter where he comes from. Here you can see the original building on my right that was built outside of the walls of the old city of Jerusalem. There were no cars at the time, there were no buses at the time, and as you can see, people came over by camels and by donkeys in order to be treated in this hospital. The building is not, in, in modern uh, terms, a huge building, but in those days, it was a marvelous huge building that really gave service that was unknown to this day. On my left side, is the modern Sharet Tzedek of today. It is located somewhere else in Jerusalem, and it's a, a building that contains almost all uh, departments that a tertiary hospital needs. So a major difference in those days. Now, the diversity of Jerusalem is both multi-religious and multicultural. From a religious point of view, there are all kinds of uh, religious people or non-religious people, but from the religious point of view, the, Jerusalem has a very large Jewish ultra-Orthodox population, which differs from even, quote-unquote, the regular Orthodox uh, Jewish uh, people. They are very strict in observing the Jewish law, including when they are sick or when they are visiting the sick, which requires a special understanding to accommodate them. There's a very large Muslim population, both Shiites and Sunni, and they have different uh, perspectives on what is right or wrong in taking care of a patient or being a patient. There is a small Christian population, both Catholic and Protestant, and again, they have their customs as well. So the patients and the caregivers are coming from all these uh, diverse religious uh, observations. From a cultural point of view, speaking about the Jews, 
that is a, a country that is existing only 70 years, and in these 70 years, over six million Jews came from all over the world, including Australians and from other countries, from the West and from the East and from the Far East, and really they come with very different cultural background. Same holds true for the Muslims, and we also have quite a large population of foreign workers from Africa, African, Filipino, and Chinese, who again have their own customs and their own culture. Now, uh, I want to uh, exemplify a few perspectives that are different the way we are looking at what is right and wrong from an ethical, cultural, religious point of view compared to the regular Western approach. As we all know, for 2,500 years since at least Hippocratic oath, the patient-physician relationship was a, pat a paternalistic relationship, meaning that the physician decided for the patient, for, his, for the patient's good, without consulting with him, without informing him, without telling him anything, because the physician knows better than the patient what is good for the patient. Who is the patient who is for the first time sick with the disease, who knows nothing about the disease, compared to me that I studied already 50 years, I had hundreds of similar patients. Obviously, I know better than him what is good for him, and therefore, it is my moral duty to treat him the way I understand without consulting with him. There's a famous story about Hippocrates going with his uh, students. In those days, obviously, there weren't hospitals. There were house calls, and Hippocrates comes to a sick person in his home with an entourage of, uh, of pupils, of students, and he tells them before they enter, when you come there, don't speak to the patient about his illness, about how he feels, that's irrelevant. He doesn't know anyway anything. Speak about the cows and his wife and his children, and you do what you think is right to do. That was good for at least 2,500 years. <laughs> Just recently, a few decades ago, a full circle, a full switch occurred in Western societies where paternalism became a dirty word, and in some cultures, it's even illegal. It, a physician can be sued if he didn't obtain an informed consent and treated the patient for his good. But, and he did good, but he didn't do it with a consent. He may be even sued. And the, magic word today is autonomy. Everyone knows best what is good for him. No one else, including the biggest professor, knows better than he what is good for him. Now, in order for him to exercise what is good for him, he needs to know all the facts. So now I have to disclose to him all the information that I know in order for him to make an intelligent, informed consent and a stresses on the informed. It's not enough that he just signs, someone pushes him a piece of paper with, 
with uh, 200 uh, paragraphs in small letters that no one can read, and he signs it, and that's a consent. That's obviously is unacceptable. You have to explain to him in his way, in his language, in his cultural background, so that he'll understand what you're offering him, and he has to consent. And if he refuses, you can't do anything about it. That is the current situation of autonomy. Personally, I think that it went from one extreme to another extreme, and it should come back to somewhere in the middle. We should respect autonomy as much as we can, but sometimes, and I'll give you a few examples which maybe to your ears will sound very strange, sometimes we have to exercise responsibility and duty and do something which we are absolutely sure is for the good of the patient, even though he doesn't think so. But I'll give you a few examples in a minute. So disclosure, disclosure of information, again, from a Western point of view, you have to tell the patient everything you know so that he will know what you know in order to make his decision. But what do we mean about everything we know? Let's say that just yesterday there was a case report in the New England Journal of Medicine. Do I have to tell the patient that usually the treatment is X, but yesterday there was an article of one case that it didn't work well? What will do a regular patient who is not in the field understand from what I'm telling him? Is it really an important information for him? The more difficult issue is to disclose bad information. How do you do it? So obviously, if, if you tell a patient uh, the first minute he enters to your room, I just received your biopsy results and you have uh, pancreatic cancer and you are going to die within three months, I'm telling him all the facts as it is, patients will not be able to stand this type of an information that's impossible for a normal person to bear with it. So there should be a way how to do it, even if at the end we have to tell him because we need his cooperation, we need to give him very difficult treatments, and obviously if he doesn't know and doesn't understand, he won't comply. But how do you do it is something that I think is more important than the mere fact that you have to do it. It's more important how you do it than what you do. And that is something that we are trying to, uh, to uh, communicate when we uh, come to bad information. Now, in Western societies, mainly studies from the USA, I don't know, perhaps it's similar here in Australia, the, the polls show that most patients want to know everything so that they can control themselves and, and make their own decisions. But there are cultures where you don't tell a person bad news. You tell it to his parents, you tell it to his uh, wife, you tell it to his uh, son, but you don't tell the patient bad news. That's a cultural way. There was an interesting letter to the editor a few years ago from a Greek physician who, uh, who uh, studied in the United States, and she was uh, indoctrinated in a way that you tell the patient everything right away in order for him to make decisions. She came back to Greece and a patient came in 
And she told him, like she studied in the United States, they fired her from the hospital because that is not the way they do it. They don't tell right away or even not at all such bad news. Someone else has to take responsibility in this particular culture. So there are legal issues, there are ethical issues. I, I don't want to go into every detail on what and how you do it, but I want to draw your attention that culturally, it's not always so simple to follow the autonomy principle and disclose bad information. Another cultural issue is that especially secular people, they take control on their own. So they want to know the information in order for them to make the decision whether or not to accept a certain treatment. But there are religious people who don't make decisions on their own at all. Every decision is being made by their religious leader. If they have to switch their shoes, they go to their rabbi and they ask him if the color is right or wrong, what should I buy? So if they do it for their shoes, certainly they do it for their life. So they uh, give up their autonomy to someone else, which even from an autonomous point of view, it is okay. If you autonomously said that someone else will make the decision for me, that is fine. But the problem is that the religious advisor, in many cases, doesn't understand the situation. Because where did he get the information? He got it from the patient. What did the patient understand? And we know from studies that even if you tell a patient everything, a lot of information he doesn't remember, some of the information he distorts, and he comes up with maybe a third of the information which is right. And coming with such a mix-up of data to a consultant makes no sense because he can't make a real decision if he doesn't have the real facts. So one of our tasks in, in our hospital, for instance, is to ask this religious person, whether he's Jewish or Muslim or whoever he is, who says that he has to refer the decision to his religious leader, we ask the name of this religious leader and we ask permission that we should present him the, the situation. And then he can make his decision and whatever he makes, the patient will accept. But at least we can make sure that the advisor understood the facts as they are and not as uh, the, the patient understood or rather misunderstood and the answers come back wrong. Personally, I had numerous cases where extremely authoritative rabbis in Jerusalem ruled for patients to do or not to do a certain a treatment, but it was based on an information that was wrong. And when I contacted this uh, rabbi and I explained to him the situation, he obviously changed his mind, which is not changing the mind, which is ruling now based on real information. So I think that this probably occurs in, in every place, not only in Jerusalem, that certain people uh, give up their autonomy for someone else to make the decision, then it would be very important that the new decision maker 
should understand directly from the physician taking care in order to make sure that his uh, decision, his ruling, is based on the right facts. Now, a third issue is coercive treatment, which, again, to the ears of a Western medical ethicist sounds almost impossible. How can you coerce someone to undergo a treatment that he refuses? Not that he didn't understand or not that he just didn't give a consent. He refuses. And yet, in balancing in certain situations the principle of autonomy with the value of life, in most instances, we prefer autonomy because we accept, all of us in Western countries, I'm not talking about those countries that autonomy is not yet respected, but where autonomy is respected, autonomy should override any other consideration. But in extreme cases, the value of life in some cultures, including in Israel, which I'll explain in a minute, may override autonomy. And the law in Israel is as following. You must obtain an informed consent. And in order to obtain the informed consent, you must explain the patient in his language, in his level of understanding, all the risks, all the side effects, all the options that are available, and what is your recommendation. Now, let's take a diabetic patient who comes with a gangrenous leg, let's say even below knee. And it's clear that if he will be amputated, he will live for many years. He will have a prosthesis for this leg that was amputated, but in most cases, unless he is a marathon runner, he can live his life normally with a good quality of life. If he is not amputated, he's going to die. There's nothing that we can do to save his life if the leg is already gangrenous. Now we come to the patient and we tell him, we offer you, after we explain to him, that we should amputate to save your life. And he refuses. And he doesn't give a very reasonable uh, argument why he refuses, but he strongly refuses and he's fully competent. We're not talking about someone who is not competent. That is opposed to a different situation where the gangrenous leg occurs in a dying patient who is dying anyway from cancer or from any other reason. And he refuses because he says, I'm going to die anyway. Why should I undergo such a procedure, which is not a simple procedure to amputate, when I'll die anyway from, from my lung cancer within a short period of time? This case, we will not force him to undergo the operation, despite the fact that this may shorten a little bit his life expectancy. He'll die sooner from the gangrenous leg than he will die of his cancer in his lung. But even if we amputate him, he will die from the lung cancer and he doesn't want it, that is perfectly fine. But a healthy person who has a gangrenous leg that will die of it, and if we amputate him, he will live for many years. What do you do in such a case? So from a pure autonomous point of view, 
He says no, you leave him, and he dies. That's, that's the only option left if you go by autonomy. But as opposed to autonomy, we are missing here the value of life. Value of life has a value by itself. It's not dependent on autonomy or paternalism. It is a value we want to live. So the Israeli law has this exception, which I think is unique to the Israeli law, which says the following. If a patient has a curable disease which not treated will cause him death, and he refuses to get the treatment, the physician has to refer to the ethics committee. The ethics committee has to try to convince him to undergo the operation by his consent. If the ethics committee fails and he still refuses, they have to, there can be two assumptions. One is that the benefit of the treatment significantly outweighs the damage of the treatment, which in this case, medically speaking, it is true, and that the ethics committee has good reason to assume that post factum he'll consent. Now that is almost a prophetic uh, demand on simple people like myself being in an ethics committee. How can I prophesize that he will indeed agree post factum? So we had several such cases in our hospital, which we did this, and I'll give you maybe another example, this operation against the uh, wish of the patient. And except for one case that even post factum he was angry at us, although he stayed alive and he functioned. In other cases, they indeed came and thanked us. And if you are missing a bouquet of flowers tomorrow, do it because we got, every one of the ethics committee got as a present a bouquet of flowers because we saved his life. Now, what does it mean? Did we violate autonomy in, in the worst uh, sense of the word? I think that the answer is no. And the reason for it is the following. Autonomy is what the patient is saying. But taking his words by face value just because he said, I don't want a treatment, is not always an autonomous decision. It can come from a whole host of sometimes nonsense feelings of the patient that he says at the moment, no, we don't have time to go into exploring and explaining every, uh, every thing, every uh, issue that he has with this operation. So we do it as if against his wish. But it turned out in all those cases that we were involved that there were really nonsense arguments why he said no. He really didn't mean no. He didn't want to die. He wanted to live. But one woman said that she was afraid of a needle. You have to put her to sleep in order to do the operation, but before she goes to sleep, she has to get the needle. That was frightening to her. She didn't tell us that, but that was the reason why she refused. So there are similar such occasions. I'll give you another example. A young girl who was born with meningomyelocele, and at day two, 
she was operated to cover the defect in her, in her lower spine. She became a paraplegic due to the lesion that she had there, and she developed hydrocephalus, and she needed a VP shunt. And she was wheelchair-bound, and with this she lived for, for many years. And she got used to it, she went to university, she, she got a degree, she was, she was functioning well. She came to the hospital because the VP shunt was infected. Now an infection of the VP shunt that goes into the brain will kill her. So the only way to save her life is to take out the infected uh, shunt, to treat the infection, and to reinsert a new VP shunt on the other side because she still has hydrocephalus. We need to treat it. So she needed a two-stage operation. We explained it to her, and she refused. So I asked her, do you understand that if the VP shunt, the infected VP shunt stays in your brain, you will die of it? She said, yes, I understand. An infection in the brain will kill me. I asked her, do you want to die? She said, no, I have a relatively good quality of life. I don't want to die. So I told her, if you combine the two answers, the obvious uh, step is now to treat you the way we propose. So she said, nevertheless, I refuse. <laughs> so what do you do in such a case? You let her die because nothing made sense here. So we decided to use this paragraph in the law, and we took out her VP shunt against her wish, we treated her with antibiotics, and now we needed a new consent to insert the VP shunt in the other side. We came to her and we said, you see, we saved your life at the moment, but we need to do the second stage. Said, go ahead, I agree. So if we would go by the word she said, I don't want, the first step, she would be dead by now. And here, doing this step without her consent really served, saved her life. So I'm not saying that this is something that occurs every day and we should every day do such a thing, but I think it's important to realize that autonomy is important, but it's not always an autonomous decision if it has to do with life and death decisions, and sometimes one has to reconsider this situation. Now let me give you a few other uh, examples where uh, there are cultural and religious uh, diversities on very important uh, aspects. Let, let me give you a story that is currently going on in our hospital related to genetics. There is a gene that causes multiple malignancies, unrelated to each other. Someone who has a malignancy in his uh, pancreas, and another time in his uh, uterus, and a third time in his thyroid, that is suspicious that something genetically is uh, programming the situation that he is getting multiple cancers, and therefore we had such a patient, and we tested her genetic makeup, and we found a gene that is causing multiple malignancies in the person. Now, this woman belongs to the ultra-Orthodox uh, community in Jerusalem. She has 10 children. 
She has several siblings, and this gene is a dominant gene, which means that about 50% of her children and siblings are carriers of this gene. Now, the sensible thing is to test all the children and the siblings. Whoever is found without the gene, he can continue his life the way he is. Whoever is found to be a carrier, that is a very important information which is life-saving because if you follow them very closely with uh, total body MRIs uh, once in half a year and with all kinds of markers and so on, you can detect the malignancies in a very early stage and cure them of this particular malignancy. So the knowledge that someone is a carrier of this gene is a life-saving information. Moreover, with the technique of pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, whoever is a carrier, we can eliminate this gene from the next generation because we can offer him, him or her to have children only via PGD and test every fertilized egg whether he carries this particular gene and only implant those fertilized eggs that don't carry the gene and the next generation will be free of the gene. So that is a very, very important uh, information for people who don't even dream that they may be carriers because if the mother didn't tell them that she was tested positive, how would they know? So we told the mother, who is the sick person with the cancers and with this gene, please bring all your children, all your siblings, we'll test all of them, and we'll give the right counseling to everyone to save their lives. She refused to give us the names. Why? Because in the ultra-Orthodox community, when a boy wants to marry a girl, it is not done by, uh, by uh, dating. It is done by the parents deciding if it's a match or not. So if there is a flaw in the family, especially such a flaw that there is a genetic disease 50% occurring in this family, this family may be wiped out from being able to get married. That's a cultural problem in this particular community. So she said, I don't want to, to expose them to such a situation that they won't be able to get married or at least not to get good marriages in, from their point of view. So we explained to her, we understand this is a real problem, but the alternative is that your children will die where we can save their lives. What is better, to have the hesitation, maybe they won't find the right match, or to die? Certainly, to die is worse, and it's a simple procedure, and why don't you let us know who they are, and we can help you with it. And she refuses. It's, it's happening now. Now, what do you do in such a situation? You say, well, she refuses, she is autonomous, so whatever will happen to our children will happen. But here it's even worse 
than the previous situation, because here it affects a third party who is an innocent party who can be saved. So if she would say, I don't want your treatments, leave me alone, okay. But to refuse to give consent to find out for a third party, this time her own children, that is even a heavier burden from an ethical point of view. Now in the Israeli law, there is a paragraph relating to similar situations. And that part, I don't know if the Australian law uh, accepts it, but in the Israeli law, if someone is found to carry a disease which can be detected and identified, a genetic disease, and it might affect a third innocent party, and the, per the patient or the, the one that this gene was found in him refuses to save the others, it is allowed for an ethics committee to disclose the information despite her refusal. But, and here's the catch, not to tell directly to the affected, to the potentially affected people, let's say her children, but to tell to the GP of the child that this person has this gene in his family, please talk to the patient of yours, which is not a patient, uh, you know him from, from colds and from diarrhea, but now it's a little more serious, talk to him and send him to us for the testing. The idea behind it makes sense because the genetic counselor that is in touch with this woman knows nothing about her children. She doesn't know them, she doesn't know who they are. And for her to call up a child and say, listen, your mother is a carrier of such a terrible gene, come and be tested, that may be detrimental. That's not uh, the right way to do. Therefore, if you do it through the GP who knows the patient, who knows the person, and who can disclose it in a better way, knowing how he can accept such news, that makes more sense. However, how do we get to them? We don't know the names of our children. We don't know where they live. We certainly don't know who is the GP of each of the 10 children and of the six siblings. How, how do we get there? So even if we have the permission to do it, how do we do it? So we are now contemplating to, do, to go to the court and ask the court to give an order to the police to reveal to us the names of the children and give an order to the health fund to allow the treating physicians to get the information and talk to them. I don't know if it will work, but what do you do in such a situation? Here is a woman that has her own ideas because of her cultural background, but he, she is jeopardizing the health and the life of her own children. How do you solve such a problem? So that is just one example of where genetics can cause cultural, religious problems that we would think shouldn't be there. End of life issues, again, there's a whole 
variety and a whole host of approaches. What do you do with a patient who is going to die? Most countries uh, consider a dying patient as someone who is going to die within six months. And what should be the right approach to him? So the Dutch, and following them in Belgium, legalized active euthanasia, which means that if a dying patient says he's competent and he says, I don't want to live anymore, I know I'll die anyway in five months, but I don't want these five months, I want to die now. How can he die now? His illness is not killing him now. He'll, kill from his illness. He'll be killed from his illness only in, in five months. The only way for him to die now is to intervene in a way that will kill him now. So the Dutch say, autonomy. He wants to die now, so I, as a physician, will inject into him KCL, barbiturates, uh, morphine in a high dose, and I'll kill him right away now. That is called active euthanasia. That is legal in Holland, in Belgium. In Belgium, they went even one step further, and they legalized active euthanasia even for minors. If a little child has a situation of end of life, his parents can request to euthanize him. And that's what they allow. One step below it, if we go in such a pattern, is what you just enacted in Australia, which started in Oregon in the United States, and by now there are about seven or eight states in the United States, where you're not allowed to kill a patient directly, but you are allowed to help him to commit suicide, which is called in different names, physician-assisted suicide, dying by, by a prescription, or all kinds of names of this kind, whereby the patient autonomously wants to die. I am not allowed to fulfill his wish to kill him, but I am allowed to fulfill his wish to prescribe a prescription that if he takes it, he will commit suicide. That's an, another step. Below that, one further step is not to interfere with acts that directly and intentionally are killing the patient, but withholding or withdrawing further treatment so that he will die of his illness because he's not being treated. Which is, a, excuse me, is and was the norm in most Western societies for the past six, seven decades. Now even in that, there are cultural differences. Some don't distinguish between omitting and committing, which means that if a dying patient comes in and he is in respiratory failure, and if I will not intubate, I won't do anything, he will die of this situation, I withheld the treatment that would save his life, he will die of his illness. A further step is he was intubated. But now he says, I don't want to continue to live this way. But he is intubated, so he's continuing to live. So I can make an act 
of withdrawing the respirator so that he will die. So in some cultures, there's no distinction between not doing anything and the patient dies or doing something which causes the patient to die. And some do distinguish and they say, withholding treatment, I'm not doing anything, that's the wish of the patient, that is okay. But if I do an act, what's the difference between doing the act of removing the respirator, which necessarily kills the patient, and killing him by euthanasia or by physician-assisted suicide? The, the limits become very uh, difficult to distinguish. So there are different ways in different cultures. And I think that the bottom line here which I'm very surprised about some countries which I'll mention in a minute, the bottom line here is that if legally in a certain country, one way or the other is legal and a patient autonomously with all the restrictions that the laws in, in those countries uh, apply is willing to go in this direction, it's okay. But what about the other direction, let's say that the patient who is dying says, I want you to treat me even for the next two weeks that I have to live. If you won't treat me, I'll die in two weeks. I want to live another two weeks. So I want you to intubate me. I want you to put me on dialysis. I want you to give me hyperalimentation or whatever treatment that will keep me alive another two weeks. I know that I won't survive more, but I want these two weeks. So in many countries, they'll try to persuade the patient not to go in this direction because of, quote unquote, futile treatment. I don't want to go into this very difficult concept. I don't think there is such a concept as futile treatment. But the idea behind it is it's a waste of time, it's a waste of energy, it's a waste of resources, and particularly it's not for your own best interest because you're going to suffer another two weeks and anyway you'll die another two weeks. So why add suffering? But this surprises me because if we respect autonomy and certainly if we give a value to life, here the two are combined. The patient autonomously wants to live and I'm giving him life. So why should I refuse, why should I be able to refuse to do it? To, to refuse to accept it. In England, they enacted a law that if the physicians feel that the treatment is futile by their definition, even if the patient requests this treatment, he will be refused. Which to me doesn't make any ethical sense, no matter how you look at it, if you go by the principles that Western society has accepted. It sounds to me, uh, Difficult to understand. So certainly in Israel we have a law that if the patient wants to continue to live, obviously if the patient says, usually patients or families say, do everything. What is everything? Obviously we won't transplant a heart to such a patient who's going to die from a pancreatic cancer in two weeks, right? That is obvious because we can't do uh, because it doesn't make any sense. But if he just wants a treatment to keep him for a short period of time, there's no real understanding why autonomy and value of life shouldn't be respected. Moreover, 
Not always does such a patient explain why he wants to suffer another two weeks or another three weeks. Does make sense to us. We, I think normally, I don't want to make a poll here, but normally a person who is dying anyway within a short period of time and he's suffering, he would say enough is enough, let me, let me die and whatever will happen will happen. I don't want to be actively prolonging my suffering. But we found out in numerous occasions that such patients have a purpose to live these two weeks. For instance, a grandchild, the first grandchild is going to be born. And they want still to see the grandchild before they die. Or their daughter is going to be married on a date which is three weeks from now. If we won't treat him aggressively, he won't see this marriage that he waited for all his life for it. So why not give him this chance? So if he says it, it makes sense to us, yet in England it will not be respected because still it doesn't make sense to the physicians to treat, therefore you won't be treated. But sometimes they don't tell us why they want this two, three weeks extra, but there might be for him a reasonable uh, explanation why he wants it, so why not give it to him? So that, I think, uh, should be taken into account. Another very debatable issue in, in Jewish uh, law, which by now is almost a non-debatable issue in uh, secular uh, law and ethics, is determining the moment of death. As you all know, until uh, until 1978, a person was declared dead if both he stopped breathing and his heart stopped. It was a cardiorespiratory death, which probably most of us will still die in this old fashion. And the reason is that in order to die differently or to be determined as dead differently, a person has to be on a respirator. What does the respirator do? If the person is brain dead, he can't breathe on his own. So therefore, if you put a respirator, he can continue to have the function of breathing, despite the fact that his brain is dead and can't control breathing. And because the function of breathing continues, his heart is still functioning normally. And because his heart is functioning normally, and he has a blood pressure, all other organs in his body are functioning normally. So since the invention of uh, organ transplants, there was a change in the definition of the moment of death. If up to 1968, uh, people were diagnosed dead only after both the heart and the breathing stopped, since this year on, if someone is brain dead on a respirator, he is considered dead despite the fact that his entire body is still alive. And because his entire body is still alive, we can take his heart, his lungs, his liver, his pancreas, his kidneys, and give it to people who are in need of it, and they will live, and he'll die anyway because we, we define him as dead. So that is a definition which is a social definition. 
From a medical point of view, it is not a better definition than any other definition. It depends what we as society call a person dead. And therefore, it's debatable. Is it right to call a person dead when his body is still functioning, including the heart, when he is warm, when you look at his monitor, it's still going on the same way as it was yesterday. Nothing changed. But today, I diagnosed him as brain dead, so I'm calling him dead. So almost, if not all, countries in the world legally accepted this new definition. So a person can die in two ways. Either he dies a cardiorespiratory death, and that is when he's not connected to a respirator, or he dies a brain death when he's connected to the respirator. The difference between the two is very obvious. If you have to wait for the heart to stop in order to call him dead, then you lost his organs. Then you can't save other people with his organs. If you accept the definition that he is dead already because his brain is dead, despite the fact that his heart is still functioning, so you have a normal heart, a normal kidney, a normal liver, and you can transplant it to others. It's an interesting story, which I don't have the time to go into, but if you happen to be in Cape Town, I, I encourage you to go to the museum of the hospital where Christian Bernard performed the first heart transplant in 1967. That was before brain death criteria were formulated. They were formulated in 1968, which is a year after he performed his first cardiac transplant. They, the hospital is an old hospital, so they made out of it a museum, minute by minute, how it happened from the donor to the recipient and the whole process and what happened there. It's a very interesting story, and it is disturbing the way it was done then. It obviously opened the door for heart transplants. Today, we do it as a routine operation, and people live many years after the operation. But what Christian Bernard did himself is very questionable. I don't know if your ethics committee would have approved it if he would have asked then if he can do it. But he did it. So sometimes inventions come in a non-ethical way, and they then become standardized, and we use it. But, but it's, it's a problem. But anyway, this determination is culture and religious dependent. Some, from a religious or a cultural point of view, do not accept brain death. They think that the person is still alive if his heart is functioning, and if he has blood pressure, and if he's warm, that to them is not a picture of a dead person. He doesn't look like a dead person. So they wouldn't accept it. So in Israel, again, the legislation regarding the determination of the moment of death says that legally death is acceptable, so that if a physician determined brain death in the way that the law requires to do it, the person is legally dead. But there is an exception uh, paragraph that says that if for religious, conscientious, cultural reason, the patient himself, if he said it before he came to this situation, or his family gives evidence that this is what he thought, 
that this is an unacceptable determination of death, he should stay on the respirator until the heart stops. Obviously, it doesn't say until he dies by the heart because he already was dead before that. You can't die twice, right? So he died legally when brain death was determined. But he's still on a respirator because this particular family thinks that he's still alive. So that is taking into account a minority position, but a minority position that is based on deep religious and cultural understanding. So that is sometimes something that you should take into account. Let me just finish in the five minutes I have a few words about PGD, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. I assume everyone knows what it is, so I don't want to go into the uh, procedure, into the medical aspect, but it was invented in order to prevent the birth of children with serious genetic diseases. They sucks, cystic fibrosis, neurofibromatosis, many diseases that we don't want our children to suffer, but if there is a spontaneous pregnancy and such a child is born, obviously we have the obligation to treat him, but if he could avoid his birth without any uh, religious problems about it, then we prefer to do it. Now, the Catholics don't allow to do PGD for their own reasons, and I'm not representing now the Catholic position, but the Jewish position is that you can do it. What does it mean? If you know that this couple has, let's say, Tay Sachs, uh, both parents are carriers of Tay Sachs, we know that 25% of their children will be sick with Tay Sachs, which is a terrible disease. They deteriorate after half a year and they die within three, four years with uh, seizures and, and retardation and spasticity, it's a terrible disease. No one would like to see such a child. So if we know that this is the situation, we can offer the parents to undergo PGD and implant fertilized, their own fertilized eggs that don't carry this gene for Tay-Sachs, and then we can assure them that the child that will be born will not be a Tay-Sachs child. We can assure them that it will be a perfect child. That's what parents want. But all that we can do is assure them that he won't be sick of this particular disease. That is how it started. But once you have such a technique, you can use it for many other things. I'll give you a few dilemmas that uh, this procedure causes. For instance, if it is not an early onset disease, if it's a late onset disease, Meaning, Tay-Sachs starts at the age of half a year. Cystic fibrosis starts at the age of a year or less. But let's say Huntington's disease. Huntington's disease is a terrible disease, but it starts around the age of 30. Is it ethical to prevent the birth of a person who is a carrier of the Huntington gene because at the age of 30, he starts to deteriorate and become demented? but he has good 30 years that he, that he is there. If a woman is carrying the BRCA gene, the BRCA gene, which 80% of carriers will develop breast or ovarian cancer at the age of 35, 40, 
Should we prevent the birth of a female who is a carrier of the BRCA gene to save her from 80% chance that she'll develop this type of cancer? Here it's even more complicated because Huntington's can't be cured. We don't know how to cure it. So that is for sure happening and it's 100% happening. The BRCA gene, A, it causes on, only, quote unquote, 80%, so 20% will never develop, even though they are carriers of the BRCA gene, they will never develop a cancer. B, you can follow them, these women, closely, and when you find the early signs of a cancer of the ovary of the breast, you can remove it and they can continue to live for many years. Some women with BRCA gene, after they finished having children and they don't want any more children, they undergo orphorectomy, you take out their ovaries, and, and, uh, and they, live, uh, they live a good life for, forever. Uh, not forever, for, <laughs> for whatever was uh, assigned to them. So is it justified to use the PGD technique for late onset disease? Example, let's say that we'll find, we, we don't know it yet, but let's say we'll find the gene for Alzheimer's disease. And let's say that this particular gene causes the beginning of Alzheimer's at the age of 80. And the person is starting to forget a little bit what I said here or, or what, what was said to him when he is 80 years old. Would it be justified not to let him be created in order to avoid this uh, problem. There are many other such dilemmas. Once we know how to do it, medically speaking, technically speaking, we can do it. Is it justified ethically to do it? And here is where ethics committees have a great important work in all of these spheres to try and find out what is right and what is wrong in each individual situation as well as in a policy matter. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the team at Essential Ethics. This podcast was made possible by the generous support of the Friends of the Children's Bioethics Centre Auxiliary. The podcast was recorded at the Royal Children's Hospital. If you like the podcast, please leave us a review and tell your colleagues. If you would like to know more about the activities of the Children's Bioethics Centre at the Royal Children's Hospital, including our annual conference, visit our website at www.rch.org.au forward slash bioethics. Essential Ethics. Be inspired. <laughs>